Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I'm Trevor Page, and I'll be your moderator for this, the 1,550th session of SACPA. <laughs> you know, SACPA was founded 44 years ago in 1968. So we hold about 35 sessions a year and multiply that by 44 and you're close to 1,550 sessions. So SAGPA deserves a round of applause. I'm very pleased to have been asked to moderate this session on doing business with China and the impact of China's economy on Alberta. You know, I spoke here on China three or four months ago, but it's one of my favorite countries, and China's economy is expected to become the largest in the world um, by 2016 in just four years. And we're very fortunate to have as our speaker today Gordon Holden, the director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. Gordon is one of Canada's top experts on China. He was born and educated in Calgary and joined the Foreign Service in 1976. Twenty-two of his years with the Foreign Service were spent working on Chinese affairs for the Government of Canada. And that includes multiple postings in Beijing, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and of course Ottawa. Mr. Holden's last assignment before joining the University of Alberta in 2008 was as Director General of the East Asian Bureau of the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade. Before inviting Gordon to the podium, I want to welcome and introduce to you a special guest we have with us today, and that is the Honorable Teresa Wu Pa, the Associate Minister of International and, Intergo and Intergovernmental Relations of the Government of Alberta. When I was speaking to the minister yesterday, I told her about today's session. And she said, I want to come. And she got on a plane this morning, and here she is. <laughs> Madam Minister, you're most welcome. I'm also very pleased that we have a former Alberta minister with us today, Clint Dunford. And he's very welcome. We could never, ever get Clint here when he was minister, <laughs> as many of you know. But here he is today representing Economic Development Lethbridge. Well, I might have been born in last <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now, um, the cost of today's session, as usual, is $11, and please put that in the little basket you see on the table in front of you, and have somebody count it, please. Now, inviting Gordon to the podium, I would ask everyone to switch off their cell phones, 
and let you, I must also let you know that this session is being recorded. Gordon. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great honor for me to be here. Uh, I come from uh, southern Alberta, a place I've never forgotten. In truth, I was actually born in Turner Valley. I'm very much of southern Alberta. I grew up in uh, Alberta as a, from a young boy, and I left after graduating from the University of Calgary. And in that period between then and when I left the federal government in 2008, I never lived any place longer than three years. My, my wife eventually wearied of that constant travel, pointing out that we had moved 12 times in the last 16 years that I was in government, and uh, we're delighted to be back in my home province uh, of Alberta, and it's a great honor to be here. I never forgot where I came from uh, or how much it meant to me. Um, it's particularly important, I think, for us to talk about China. It, at the end of the day, whatever one thinks about China the most important thing is not to ignore it because it is important and it's growing importance, particularly for this province. It has gotten a higher profile steadily, and in this year in particular because of a few large acquisition cases such as, ne as Nexon-Sinuk deal, it's achieved a very high profile, and that's, that's normal. But I think we're still in very early days. I think we're going to see a higher and higher profile for China as it continues to grow. Now, as our, our host um, um, mentioned, um, China may exceed the size of the U.S. economy in the next four years. I've been very cautious on those predictions, but whether it's four years or 14 years or 20 years, the fact is it's likely to happen. Or if it doesn't, they're going to be very close, um, uh, very close in proximity. I also would be remiss if I didn't also thank um, Mr. Pau. I'm particularly honored the fact that she has come such a long way to hear me. Um, that's very kind of her. And also, Minister Dunford, I uh, thank you for your service to this province. Uh, it's been very very important and, uh, and appreciated by, by me. Um, one thing I'd say about China is that while it is, is prominent and it's important in the world, it's not really a new thing. For most of the last 2,000 years, China has been the world's largest economy. It's only in that period from about 1850 on when China was rather misgoverned under a lot of pressure from the outside that it slid into backwardness relative to much of the, re of the rest of the world. For most of that 2,000 years, China was handily the largest economy. And even at the time, let's say, of the formation of the United States um, in the uh, late 18th century, China was much, much larger in terms of its domestic economy. Inward-looking, inwardly focused, not always a great trading partner, but a very large economy with a larger population than any other country. And, of course, that's still the case in terms of the size of the economy. What changed in China for, means particularly important is not just what's happened over the last... 60-plus um, years since 1949 when the People's Republic of China was established, but what's happened since 1978 when the economic reforms led by Deng Xiaoping began to take shape. I had the opportunity, I'm dating myself here, um, of a meeting Deng Xiaoping on three occasions. I can assure you he didn't meet me. I was in the company of our prime ministers, uh, Trudeau and Mulroney, as a note-taker. Um, but besides taking careful notes, I was watching very carefully this man, and he was a magnetic, puppy, uh, a magnetic personality, a very short individual, already in his 80s when I met him, but with a very clear sense of ease of command, and you could just feel the room centered on him, and he was looking a very long way into the future. Um, now, I'm going to advance this right here. 
Set my next slide. You can do any number of what I call hockey stick graphs of China, meaning they're shaped a little bit like a hockey stick. And if I went a little bit further back in time, this line on the far left would be even flatter in terms of where you would see the, um, the beginning there. Because if you go back until 1980, which isn't that long ago, Canada normally had a larger economy than China. Now, it's partly in how you count, but at that time we had a population of about 25 million people. They were at about 1.2 billion. They're now at 1.4. But the economy was not functioning. They'd been through 10 years of cultural revolution, uh, people basically studying politics instead of working, and the output was at an extraordinarily low level. And it was that really dissatisfaction with the state of affairs that created the, the opening for the modernization that has taken China so far. Um, how that was accomplished would take more time than we have today necessarily, but I believe that the fundamental thing that China had to offer was a, was a cultural, a hardworking people uh, who uh, respect education and were prepared to really put their shoulder to the wheel stone. It wasn't just what the communist government or the Chinese government did. It was what the people did in response to those policies that for the first time in a long time gave them an incentive to work. The radical idea of the time that you could, if you worked harder, you got more that complete equality had its merits, but had its big, strong demerits as well, and that uh, hard work should be rewarded. That is the real genius of what's been done in China. It's not just the economic policies. It's unleashing the capacity for work and the, and the genius of the Chinese people. And you can see that sharp growth. Now, that can't go on forever, but I don't think it's, it's, it's seen its proximity. Or it's seen its ultimate end. I've been predicting for... 25 years, the growth rates in China would slow. As they became more integrated in the global economy, that the growth would stall or even slow down, or even reverse briefly. And one of these years, I'll be right. So far, for 25 years, I've been wrong. I still think one of these years I will be right, but we're not there yet. I think there's still more, more growth um, left in that economy. These two here. And here's a, an interesting graph. Um, you can see the China and the United States. Now, I mean, be cautious when it comes to those dotted lines on the right. That's basically projection uh, that takes us into a period of some eight years from now. Um, our, my introducer mentioned that these lines may meet as early as, as uh, 2016. It partly depends on how you count the economies, whether you go with something called nominal GDP or purchasing power, etc. So you can, you can play with the figures a little bit, but you can see how fast they've come and in, in a relatively short time, if you look back to 1980, you see that tremendous variation. This is not a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. And I'm a, um, I would argue that 32 years in foreign service taught me you've really got to deal with the world as it is. Um, trying to pretend it's otherwise is a big mistake, particularly when you're a small country such as ours. So let's look at this and see what are the opportunities. Uh, one of the problems we have in this province, we are... 90% dependent on the U.S. economy. It's the best economy in the world. It'll always be the number one trading partner for us. But it's a bit like having a business where you have only one customer. Um, one customer is not a winning formula. It would be helpful to have more than one customer. Or if you, are, if you uh, have stocks, having only one stock in your portfolio sounds to me like high risk, high volatility. And that's the problem for Canada, particularly the problem in Alberta. We're more dependent on the U.S. market than, than other provinces in general or the country as a whole. The country is about 70% dependent on the U.S. market. We're about 80%. And that's great 
as long as your economy, as the U.S. economy is growing and strong and healthy, but it hasn't been particularly healthy since 07, 08, and there's no guarantees that all of the problems it's facing right now in terms of debt, in terms of the fiscal cliff and these other things that one hears about in the news every day, that those problems will all be solved. It's simply prudent for Canadians to have other options. Of course, the last thing we'd want would be entirely dependent on the Chinese economy either, but that's not likely to happen. The U.S. will remain our single largest um, um, trading partner. Now, that growth is slowing in China, so that you can't project that line, that red line upwards forever, but it's slowing to what level? Now it's, for 2012, almost certainly 7 to 8% growth. Well, U.S. economy, under 2, our own economy, around 2% at best, probably below that number. So that number is still very big. And while that growth rate is dropping slowly, if you go back to the 1990s, it was actually growing at a rate in double digits. You don't quite see it there because it was growing from a very small base. So while the rate of growth is slowing, the absolute amount is, is much larger. In other words, if you've got $1,000 in the bank and you're getting 5% interest, you're better off than getting 10% interest on $50. It's the same concept, quite straightforward. And that is why we simply can't ignore the China market, uh, particularly if you're exporting raw materials or agricultural products. I'll just... I'm not the absolute best on all things electronic. I depend heavily on my children, who are just a lot better at it than I am. My clocks tend to blink 12 until I've got five kids, and one of them shows up and fixes everything. So I'll, I'll manage these two screens in the interim. Uh, here we're looking at um, Canada-China trade. Of course, you don't have to look at that very hard and see what the problem is. Let's have a look at where China's exports are, and let's have a look where our exports are. It shouldn't be a surprise. You walk into a Canadian store, almost anywhere, and it's full of Chinese products, right? They're very good value for money. They actually keep, help keep the inflation rate in Canada rel relatively low because they're of decent quality and they don't cost too much. They benefit consumers. They benefit our manufacturers because they get relatively inexpensive and good quality inputs. But they do lead to this factor. Fortunately, it's balanced out by the fact that we have a consistent trading surplus in the United States. That's very good. We need to close that gap, and the sooner the better. Now, if I had 2012 figures on that screen, you'd have some hope, because, in fact, our exports to, United, to China this year have ticked upwards, and China's running fairly flat. But at the rate of closing the gap, we're still many years off. I'm hopeful we can close that gap, though, and we should have already closed it. The reason we should have closed it is because we're a resource-exporting country. China wants exports. Um, wood, for example, uh, this last year, um, British Columbia now began to sell more wood products to China than to the United States. The United States got a lot of wood um, forest growth of their own and, and lumber products of their own. China has relatively little for a very large uh, country. So there's already you're seeing in some provinces, mostly western provinces, upticks in our, in our exports of resources. And some industrial com companies like Bombardier, are doing very well in uh, selling aircraft and trains uh, to China. One of the most amazing things I saw when I was last posted in China was a, a large Soviet aircraft arrive in Guang, Guangzhou with a locomotive on board uh, built in Montreal, which is an amazing thing to see. I'm glad it wasn't on that plane, quite frankly. The, if they had been told that there's a locomotive on board, it's a huge transport plane. But So we need to sell a lot more industrial products as well. But in the meantime, we need to close that gap and it's going to take very aggressive uh, sales effort to do that. And, uh, here we have 
Um, moving on now to investment, and that's the one that's generated so much um, controversy and interest in this year. Chinese are prodigious savers. There's some reasons for that. They save on average, it's hard for me to even imagine because I've never succeeded to do this, over 50% of their income. It's partly because they have a very low tax structure. Um, it's partly because they don't have a very well-developed safety net. So families have to think about how am I going to pay for the education of my children, which in theory is state-provided, but in reality has tremendous costs, right, from tutoring to books, all sorts of things. They also don't have a very well-developed health care program, so people have to save a lot of money to have a cushion in case they should become ill. But one of the side effects of that is tremendous amount of money flowing into Chinese banks, which is then available to Chinese companies uh, for expansion abroad. And here you can see how they, they break out their, um, their savings. You can see the biggest signal piece is energy, and that helps explain where we're at in terms of, um, of um, um, this province, which, of course, is the energy hub of this nation and where the biggest single portion of Chinese investment is in energy. I don't think it will be there forever. I think things like real estate will grow quickly. Um, the biggest single fastest growth product of China last year was auto parts. Um, unimaginable when I was first growing up that you'd own a Japanese car. Um, for the younger people here, that probably is hard to remember, but uh, um, Japanese investments, Japanese products were seen as very poorly put together, very shabby quality, etc. And some of them may have been. Now, of course, Japanese made for my children's generation is something that means automatically quality. The idea that it'd be not just Japanese cars in Canada or Korean cars, but that these would be assembled in Canada was inconceivable. I predict that we will see the day when there will be not just Chinese investment in, in energy and in raw materials, but actual manufacturing plants employing Canadians. I think that's something that will come with time, um, with the fullness of time. It may take a while, but I think we'll see that in, in due course. You're also why, – because why do they invest abroad? There's a bunch of reasons. When it comes to energy, I think the state, the Chinese state, has, puts a big value on strategic concerns. They import most of their oil in the Middle East. Um, you just have to glance at a newspaper to realize that's not the most stable supply of energy in the world. They are heavily, they're the largest single importers of oil from Iran. There's a big question mark over that. And some, they've been burnt in the South Sudan when that country was formed. Uh, they lost a lot of the value of their assets, as well as in Libya when the Libyan government changed. So they're looking for stability, and Alberta certainly delivers stability. We are looking for diversity of markets. They're looking for security of supply. So it's really a, a, a well-made match. There's a couple other reasons as well. Uh, I think they, they want um, um, safe haven investment. So particularly when we see the um, uh, private investment coming, which will come eventually, you'll see a lot of, of families and individuals who want to just hedge their bets a bit by having some, some money, some investment in, in a safer place. Uh, some people in China tend to have long memories, and China hasn't always been as stable as it's been over the last uh, 30 years. This is a complicated one. I'm not going to walk you through all of the complications but, of this one, but it really what's important there is simply these are inward-bound investments. And China's number two there. The United States is almost always number one because it has by far the largest economy still. A reminder, China isn't just sending money out abroad. They have been for 30 years taking billions and billions of dollars investment into China because their market, internal market has been growing very quickly. This year, inward-bound investment to China will be about almost $100 billion. U.S. or Canadian doesn't make much difference now, as you know. Let's call it just $100 billion as a round, as a round number. Um, and this, this year, in particular 2010, is 106, so it's down slightly. 
Inward bound investment is not disappearing. Every large Fortune 500 company uh, wants to put money into China uh, simply because um, it's the largest, fastest growing market. Chinese were almost universally um, the pool of the most poor people within as, as most recently as 1980. They had the largest number of what the United Nations calls the um, um, the absolute poor. And that was, then it was defined as about a dollar a day. Now it's, it's around $2 a day of, of income. China still has a lot of people in that category, but they've got a lot of middle class as well. Depends how you define middle class, but it's somewhere in the region of between 100 and 200 million. Sounds like a lot, but they've got a population of 1.4 billion. So their middle class can grow from 1 to 200 million to 4 to 5 to 6 to 7 to 8. It depends again on how those graphs keep growing. So their thirst for products and their opportunity for foreign companies to make money in China is considerable. We know that the Obama administration and through the bailout helped rescue General Motors. Well, the Chinese also helped rescue General Motors. Uh, General Motors makes more money in China than they do in the United States. They are, they've got a very automated, very sophisticated plants there. They're not putting automobiles together with teams of workers. It's all robot-driven as it is everywhere else if you want high-quality, high-volume car production. So if you're a large company, you can't ignore that China market, or at least if you avoid it or you ignore it, um, uh, you, you miss out on a lot of growth. I'll just take this forward one more. Yeah. Now, another graph you don't really have to absorb and complain. This is the outward-bound investment. China here, and these are 2010 figures, is right down there as number six. Um, it's a little bit artificial because Hong Kong tends to be broken out. Um, and for a couple of reasons, I'll mention why I think that Chinese outflow of capital at that time, $76 billion, was already much larger than that. Capital is a bit like money. It flows around. It flows on the ground. It goes through drains. It, it's um, hard to track. And one of the phenomena that, that uh, has happened is that China sends money to Hong Kong, which then goes abroad, sometimes through a bank in Cayman Islands, sometimes through a third country, and arrives. So it's consistently undercounted in Canada. We think we know how much money is coming into Canada from China. We don't really know with much precision. If someone has a student or a, a relative who's bought a house in Vancouver, they may have drawn that money from their own savings. Do you count that or you don't count that? There's a lot of even how do you define investment. I just think we're consistently undercounting it. But China is moving up. And that number there at 76 and the previous number for their inward-bound investment was just over 100. By 2014, at the latest, the outward-bound investment from China will be exceeding the inward-bound. And it's then going to just pull away from there, in my view, in terms of the, of the numbers. They are sitting on, the Chinese, $3 trillion of foreign currency. And that money is gradually being deployed in large, in large amounts. Uh, we are a country which desperately needs capital. Our Minister of Natural Resources, Oliver, indicated the other day that we'll it will take over $600 billion to develop the oil sands, $600 billion. Well, I can tell you, you can do the math, 4 million Canadians are not going to save that money. 32 million Canadians are not going to save that money. In fact, we wouldn't have developed the oil sands or the oil resources in this province on our own domestic savings uh, to the degree it's been developed already if it hadn't been for foreign investment. It's just one of those realities. You've got a small population, you've got a large area, you've got a lot of natural resources, you need foreign capital. 
And we're not alone in that. Uh, the United States, when it, we went through its rapid development in the 19th century, used a tremendous amount of British uh, investment, and it's, it's the normal pattern. The Chinese have followed that pattern. Now they're sending their money abroad uh, to a large extent. I'm just going to make that point about how we don't really know how much investment we have here. Um, here's Stats Canada's numbers, which show a small decline. And there's a bunch of problems I have with this. Number one, we count Hong Kong separately. Um, there's historical reasons for that. I understand that. But the experts that I speak to in the Department of Foreign Affairs, in Industry Canada, know very well this number understates. If money comes in from the Cayman Islands, if money comes in through the United States or through a third country, it's counted as coming from that place, not from China. Uh, this number, I would estimate, to be about half of the actual level of investment. Let's assume that my, my estimate, if you don't count real estate, we'd be at about $20 billion rather than 10. If the next Encino agreement goes forward, that's another 15. That would then take us to about 35. So almost, almost a doubling from that one deal alone if that goes forward. We can talk about the merits of that, or you can save that as a question if you like. One of the great fears is with speakers, there'll be no questions. It's my worst, worst nightmare. <laughs> Not here? Good. That's a good thing. Um, there's another busy, complicated chart, and it's also two years out of date, which isn't a lot, but just basically shows consumption by region. And if you run that back 20 years, you'd see Asia as a very minor consumer. Now they've got several large economies, Japan, South Korea, India, growing, all growing, well, particularly China and India growing rather quickly, slightly larger than North American consumption. And keep in mind that the Americans and Canadians per capita use a tremendous amount of energy. China is still on a per capita basis rather low. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that that thirst in China for energy uh, really will, will continue and, and, and accelerate. This means a lot if you're an oil exporting province like Alberta. Right now, of course, and until we get a pipeline that goes to the West Coast or more pipelines that go anywhere for that matter, east, west, north, through the earth to China, I'm not really sure what's doable. They don't, none of them look very doable right now. But until we get another, we, we won't be selling any, any oil to China. To some extent, it doesn't completely matter. How is that? Well, the Chinese demand is so large that they are the single biggest piece of growth in demand for energy every year. And that's what's helping to push the, the, the price, the international price of petroleum. So whether you sell a barrel of oil to China or not, they are maintaining the price. They've helped push the price and maintain it at a relatively high level. So yes, it's even better if you sell it to them because right now our oil is in an inward, in, in a somewhat isolated lake and we're selling it at too low prices to the United States. If we could get our oil to the West Coast or any coast, we'd be getting... Um, depending on the moment you ask, but 20 to $30 a barrel higher uh, than we would get selling it to the United States or to the inland United States at this time. So having exports to, to China uh, gets us money. But just keep an eye on those, on those circles there. Those are relevant. We're going to look at those in a little bit more detail. I have to catch up here with my notes. Here we're looking at oil consumption in major Asian countries. And you can see there that well, the province correctly says we want to boost oil exports to Asia. The Prime Minister says the same thing. You can see which is the most important one. Japan is declining. I think it may tick up a little bit because they are shutting down their nuclear plants. I was speaking to a Japanese industry person just yesterday, and because of the horrible results of their um, tsunami, the public has lost confidence in their nuclear reactors and their, um, 
they're going to shut down. There's only two of them operating, I think, out of about 30. So they'll be importing more more oil, and particularly more coal and also more gas. But and, and India will increase. But look at the Chinese uh, growth rate there. I think the Chinese rate will level off. A lot of that is explained by automobiles. And uh, I can remember when I first moved to China, and there's a couple people in our audience, I think my introducer, um, Perver, who, who was there in some of the same early times in the early 80s, and you could fire a cannon down some of the streets and, and not hit a car. You unfortunately would hit a lot of bicycles, but you wouldn't hit many cars. And, um, and that story has now changed. I mean, you can, on most streets in Beijing now, you can walk faster than you can drive. They're absolutely clogged with automobiles. And that's actually maybe bad news for the atmosphere in Beijing, which is not the best. In fact, when I first moved from back from, my last move back from Beijing to Ottawa, Every now and then, I'd feel a little bit lightheaded, and I'd have to lean over to a car exhaust to revive myself to, <laughs> to feel a little bit better. But, but in any case, uh, the growth is good if you're an oil exporter, and we're oil exporters par excellence. Um, this is natural gas consumption, which is growing rapidly. The Chinese are trying to increase this. It's better for the atmosphere. burns a lot more cleaner, and they're bringing in a lot of gas. They have domestic gas production, and they are bringing in a lot from... Um, uh, you see the Japanese numbers ticking up there. Um, those are quite recent numbers. Uh, they're bringing in a lot from Russia. They're bringing in a lot of gas from Central Asia. And they've made some massive deals with Indonesia and Australia. Now, if you think $15 billion for Nexon is large, last year the Chinese concluded a deal in Australia. This wasn't to purchase an Australian company, but they made a long-term contract for $77 billion worth of natural gas, liquid natural gas. It's one of the reasons why the... Australian dollar has been so buoyant. Um, it's being buoyed up by the, um, by the Chinese economy and by the exports to China. I wish we could do as well. And that's one of the advantages, actually, of the Australians. I, I like the fact we're beside the United States. It gives us access to the best market in the world. But for the Australians, they've had to be rather more nimble. When I, just around the time I was born, their largest single, smart, single market was Great Britain. It then became the United States. It then shifted to Japan. But then now it's shifted to China as their largest single market, which has meant that their economy, their business people have gotten used to a lot of change, and they've become rather agile and nimble. They still they trade with all of those markets, but they have a diversity that we don't have. In that same time frame, we've had United States, United States, United States, and United States. Well, that's great as long as the U.S. economy is growing. When the U.S. economy begins to stumble or slow, that's got big, inf big influence on us, and we've actually – one of the things that's helped carry us through this recession and why the effects have been much less in Canada is because our exports to other markets have, be, have been growing. A little bit less true in energy, but certainly true in other products. And here's um, just another factor that shows the um, energy consumption uh, where China has, um, um, again, keep in mind this is future-looking. So every time you look into the future, uh, I could, if I had a whole day to speak, I could tell you about all the times when I've got things wrong and trying to predict the future. Um, but um, this is simply one one quick look at uh, where we may be going in terms of energy consumption. If you look further, China pulling away, and that to ignore that would be a mistake. Here's uh, Chinese imports. Um, on the top one is as a percent of imports. If you look down to the left, they used to import just 40%. Now they're going to 70%, and then there's millions of barrels of oil. Just telling us that their dependence on foreign oil is not going away. One of the big question marks, and one of the reasons why 
I'm afraid it's going to be tougher and tougher to sell oil in the United States because the United States has now got very large shale oil and liquid uh, and liquids out of uh, shale uh, formations. China has even more of that. They have just begun to make drilling. The drill holes are in the range of of hundred. You've got thousands upon thousands already drilled in the United States, um, and that's one of the reasons why. But it's just a question mark. It's a bit hazardous to assume anything in the future. Um, if the Chinese were able to find as much gas as they think they have and to harness it, it might put some question marks over some of my assumptions. And I'm going to conclude with just um, some quick remarks on what Albertans think about China. Well, I'm enthusiastic about China. I have lots of things I, li- I like about it, lots of things I don't like about it, but I don't believe in ignoring it. And so what China Institute does every year, we poll the views of Albertans, and we do a big poll, not a small poll, but a very large one, conducted not by me, but by something called the Population Research Lab on campus. Some very good demographers who run this, and we simply ask what their views were. The last one was released in October, late October, and here's what we found. I've just taken a small sampling of the the, um, views of Albertans. If you look at should we promote energy exports to to China, we've got a pretty strong majority, 59% in support, only 18% opposed, but... If you ask a question, and of course it always depends on the question you ask, um, is partial ownership okay? Well, you've still got a reasonable number in favor. It's now a minority, um, but the numbers have gone south. And then if you ask um, full ownership, the numbers get much, much less positive. We're looking there at 15% in favor. And everybody's been reading these polls, of course, the prime minister and the premier and others. And then if you ask um, state enterprise ownership, the numbers are pretty small again. And my own take on polling is that governments, this is a personal opinion, governments should, um, and it's actually wonderful being out of government. I can now express my personal opinions. I spent 32 years, as it was my duty, very carefully uh, giving the views of whatever government was in power, whatever was the prime minister's views on China, those are the ones which I parroted. And I agreed most, much of the time, but not all the time. Now I can speak my own views, but they only represent my personal opinion. My view is that polling is important, but that trying to govern by polls can also be a trap. Uh, the governments have to provide leadership. They have to look, and I'm looking at the ministers in the audience, uh, past and current, they have to look beyond the numbers and to provide leadership. And I'm nervous about shutting China out of our economy Um, when we should be competing for share of the Chinese economy. Every other economy on earth, modern economy, the Germans, you can go to a Chinese hotel, it's full of Germans, Americans, Brits, Australians, um, um, all competing to get a share of that export opportunity in China and to compete for investment as well for that matter and to ignore it as a mistake. Um, But, you know, of course, Canadians will determine this. And if we do accept Chinese investment, I think it should be on terms that are acceptable to us. Each deal, each large deal, should be looked at very carefully to make sure it really is in the view of the Canadian government and the provincial government of benefit to us. And we should ensure that the regulations and laws that apply to Canadian companies and other foreign companies here apply to the Chinese equally and that there's no, it's a level playing field. Um, We have a foreign investment protection agreement which was signed uh, earlier this year in Vladivostok by the Prime Minister. I worked on that agreement. A host of others did. It took 18 years to negotiate And we did that in response to pressure from the Canadian business community. It's controversial, as almost everything to do with China is. But I'm firmly of the view that we need it, that Canadian companies that go to Chinese courts don't always get a fair shake. And one of the uh, key parts of that agreement is that it allows for arbitration. I think Chinese companies here need it a lot less. 
our business people are much more exposed in China and will benefit from it. Just one final takeaway. Um, here's the percentage of the economy that's generated by government in each, uh, in each country. I'm, gonna give these, I'm not going to give these figures on a screen. I'm just going to speak them to you. Um, in France, 52% of the economy is generated by government spending. In Canada and the United States, it's about 40%, almost 40%. It's in the high 30s. In China, it's 20%. And here's the irony, of course. The popular perception of China is that everything's run by the government. Reality, 80% of the economic activity in China is private. That's just small business people, often food stalls, small storefront operations, big corporations now, relatively large corporations, private hands. It's very much a private industry-dominated economy, albeit with more oversight by government than we are used to. It's true in most, com in most countries but very much a private economy. The reason those numbers are so high in China is they don't have a lot of entitlements, they don't have unemployment insurance, and they don't have a good health insurance plan. That's it, and I just the takeaway I'd be, I would, last line would be, it doesn't matter to me particularly whether you like China or you dislike it. My warning would be simply don't ignore it. It's too important to us and to our future. Thank you very much.